Hello, David. More governments are moving towards relaxing lockdowns. What's your current thinking on the easing and restrictions and the resulting market consequences? Hi, Alex. So clearly the lockdowns and social distancing measures are proving successful in getting the reproduction rate of coronavirus below one. And and that's clearly a necessary condition for containing the virus. Before such measures, each person with the virus on average was passing it to three others, hence the exponential spread of the virus in the first months of the crisis. But the economic costs of the lockdown are also becoming ever more apparent. It's reported that the lockdown in India has resulted in 120 million lost jobs. In in the US, more than 20 million jobs were lost in April alone, and the unemployment rate surged to 15%. In fact, it's likely to be higher than that, closer to 20%. It's clear that the longer lockdowns are kept in place, the more jobs will be permanently lost. And there's no amount of central bank liquidity that ultimately would prevent businesses from becoming insolvent. Now, with the reproduction or R-rate below one, governments are beginning to ease lockdowns. But the dilemma, of course, is if they ease too much too soon, the R-rate could quickly move above one triggering a second wave of the virus and renewed restrictions, which would be even more damaging to the economy. I think it is worth noting that in Europe and the US, the easing in lockdowns is actually coming at an earlier point in the inflection curve than it did in China and uh, in other countries across uh, Asia. So I, I, I think there are you know, risks associated with the easing in these lockdowns. And, and even in you know, within Asia, for example, in, in South Korea, which has been one of the most successful in curbing the epidemic through effective testing and trace. And there's also been a, a recent pickup in, in new cases, also seen some new cases in Wuhan. Now, the numbers are actually pretty, pretty small, but I, I think it is a, a reminder of the risk of a renewed outbreak in what is a highly infectious disease. And, and so I, I am a bit concerned that markets are too optimistic on how quickly the economy will return to normal and and place too little weight on the risk of a second wave. Um, If if we look at the benchmark, if you like, for global risk assets, so the S&P 500, it's actually retraced more than 70% of its sell-off in March. So I do think much of the good news on containing the virus and the easing of lockdowns is already in the price. And And from that sense, I think right now it does make sense for investors to um, exercise some caution. A feature of credit markets, especially investment grade, is a surge in bond supply. Why and what are the implications? Well, well, you're absolutely right. There's been um, a huge amount of corporate bond issuance, uh, particularly in the US investment grade market. It's been around about $800 billion in the year to April. So that's actually at twice the rate of last year. And and in Europe, it's running around about 60% last year's level. So we've seen about 170 billion euros of debt issued by European investment grade rated companies. The Fed is just about to buy US investment grade bonds. The ECB is buying around about 15 to 20 billion euros every month of European investment grade credit. Combined, I think, with the investor inflows that have been attracted by 
you know, quite attractive valuations, much lower FX hedging costs. This surge in supply has actually been absorbed in, in a pretty orderly manner by the market. That said, I do think it has nonetheless, you know, weighed on the rally in uh, credit spreads. I think credit spreads would have tightened by more in investment grade if there hadn't been for the supply. And I, th- and I think the supply is going to be ongoing because the fundamental driver is the collapse in cash flow and corporate earnings that the corporate sector has faced as a result of the virus, the lockdowns, the restrictions on economic um, activity. So I think we're going to see continuing substantial supply. I think probably not at such a strong pace as we've seen in recent weeks, but nonetheless, I think there will be ongoing bond issuance. What what does that mean more generally? I, I, I do think that that's going to mean that, you know, we're, we're clearly going to see an inevitable rise in corporate leverage. I think over the, the medium term, that is going to weigh on the economic recovery as management's focus on balance sheet repair. With such high levels of debt, I think companies are going to be cutting back on capital expenditure. I think their willingness to engage in new hiring is going to be less. On, on the f- other side of that, equation, if you like, is the fact that despite higher leverage, higher debt levels, debt service costs are going to stay pretty low because central banks, as we've discussed before, are going to keep interest rates very low for a very long, long time. So although higher leverage, I think, means that we will continue to see uh, rating downgrades, I think default risk in investment grade will remain very low, something we've discussed in previous um, podcasts. And so I think investment grade will remain quite an attractive destination for investors as a source of relatively safe income. It's been an interesting contrast with the high yield market. The, as is typical in the credit downturn, the high yield market issuances typically falls quite sharply. And in fact, in Europe, it's almost ground to a halt. That's not the case in the US where we have seen a pickup in issuance. I think it was close to $40 billion issued in the course of April. And I think more generally, with yields of 7 8% higher, the risk-return profile over a two- to three-year horizon for investors who can pick their way through this crisis is is, is quite attractive. But in contrast to the investment-grade space, clearly there is meaningful default risk. And again, as we've discussed previously, we are going to see quite a significant rise in the uh, volume of defaults in, in the high yield space. You mentioned that central banks will have to keep interest rates at very low levels because of the extra debt created by this crisis. Do you think the Fed will follow the ECB and Bank of Japan by taking overnight rates into negative territory? Uh, well, it's something that does seem to be on the minds of many investors. If, if you look at US interest rate futures, for, for instance, they do suggest a pretty high chance that the Fed will cut its policy rate into negative territory towards the end of this year or uh, sometime in the first half of next year. And and that's despite the Fed officials pushing back on that idea. I'm pretty sceptical that the Fed will adopt negative interest rates. I, I think the experience of Japan and Europe with negative interest rates has been, you know, mixed at best. And and I I suspect that one of the reasons why the U.S. interest rate futures market might be, you know, overstating the likelihood of negative rates in in the U.S. is because U.S. banks are 
uh, are actually sort of hedging against that risk because as we've seen in Japan, as we've seen in Europe, negative rates is not good for the banking sector. I, I do think the Fed is much more likely to step up quantitative easing, possibly set you know targets for treasury yields. So you know, something close to the Bank of Japan's yield curve control. I think those are more likely options uh, than the Fed following Europe and Japan down the rabbit hole of negative interest rates. Finally, the big news event last week was the German Constitutional Court ruling against some aspects of the ECB's asset purchase programmes. Is this a significant development? Well, I mean, the the German Constitutional Court, as, as you say, Alex, ruled that the ECB quantitative easing, not, we should say, its bigger and more flexible pandemic emergency purchase program or or PEP, but the QE was possibly illegal because the ECB had failed to demonstrate that it had fully considered the economic consequences and hence violated the uh, principle of proportionality enshrined in the um, EU treaty. Since then, the ECB and the European Court of Justice have pretty much dismissed the German court ruling. The ECJ had previously ruled that the ECB actions were legal and also noted that it's the European Court of Justice, not national courts, that have jurisdiction over European institutions. And that, of course, includes the European Central Bank. The market shrugged off the German court ruling, and I don't think the ECB is going to be bound by it. But I think the ruling does underline that you know the euro does remain you know currency without a nation, and and I think that m- makes coordinated and timely monetary as well as fiscal policy action more complex and and, and more difficult. But I also do think that the ECB's commitment to do whatever it takes remains undiminished. So. Um, I don't think it's something that can be lightly dismissed, but I do think that the the market implications are actually quite uh, small at this stage. Thanks, David. Look forward to speaking to you again next week. Thanks, Alex. This podcast is issued in the United Kingdom by Blue Bay Asset Management, LLP, which is authorised and regulated by the UK Financial Conduct Authority, registered with the US Securities and Exchange Commission and the US Commodity Futures Trading Commission, and is a member of the National Futures Association. This podcast may also be issued in the United States by Blue Bay Asset Management LLC, which is registered with the SEC and the NFA. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Unless otherwise stated, all data has been sourced by Blue Bay. To the best of Blue Bay's knowledge and belief, this podcast is true and accurate at the date hereof. Blue Bay makes no express or implied warranties or representations with respect to the information contained in this podcast and hereby expressly disclaim all warranties of accuracy, completeness or fitness for a particular purpose. This podcast is intended for professional clients and eligible counterparties as defined by the FCA only and should not be relied upon by any other category of customer. Except where agreed explicitly in writing, Blue Bay does not provide investment or other advice and nothing in this podcast constitutes any advice nor should be interpreted as such. No Blue Bay fund will be offered except pursuant and subject to the offering memorandum and subscription materials the offering materials. If there is an inconsistency between this podcast and the offering materials for the Blue Bay Fund, the provisions in the offering materials shall prevail. You should read the offering materials carefully before investing in any Blue Bay Fund. This podcast does not constitute an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to purchase any security or investment product in any jurisdiction and is for information purposes only. 
No part of this podcast may be reproduced in any manner without the prior written permission of Blue Bay Asset Management, LLP. Copyright 2020, Blue Bay. The investment manager, advisor and global distributor of the Blue Bay Funds is a wholly owned subsidiary of Royal Bank of Canada and the Blue Bay Funds may be considered to be related and or connected issuers to Royal Bank of Canada and its other affiliates. Registered trademark of Royal Bank of Canada. RBC Global Asset Management is a trademark of Royal Bank of Canada. Blue Bay Asset Management LLP, registered office, 77 Grosvenor Street, London, W1K3JR, partnership registered in England and Wales, number OC370085. The term partner refers to a member of the LLP or a Blue Bay employee with equivalent standing. Details of membership of the Blue Bay Group and further important terms which this message is subject to can be obtained at www.bluebay.com. All rights reserved.